Isaiah chapter 7. What I'd like to do with the Lord's help over the next several Sundays is to look at several Old Testament passages that prophesy of the Messiah, the first coming of Jesus Christ. And we're reminded, I was reminded even this week, once again, that just as God promised the first coming of Christ, so he has promised the second coming, which includes the rapture of the church. And so as we prepare for Christmas, and as we reflect on several of these Messianic passages, uh, I want us to also uh, be occupying till he comes again. And we have a, a call from the Lord to this time, to this place. I was uh, uh, emailing back and forth with a church member this week a little bit, and he was thanking the Lord for uh, God's blessings this, this past year, and he said, as tough as it is to see what is going on in America and around the world, he, he mentioned how grateful he was to still be an American and to not having been born in the USSR or down in Haiti where there's no functioning government. And we are uh, thankful for the blessings, as, as difficult as it can be sometimes with all the negatives and all the headlines and the way America is going. We're still called to this time, to this place, and uh, we're trusting the Lord to help us to be faithful right here and right now where he has called us. Isaiah chapter 7 is a Messianic prophecy. We're familiar with verse 14, but I want to really expand and give us some good grammatical historical context and help us understand uh, the richness of this prophecy and the timing in which God gave it. Isaiah 7 and verse 1, and it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim, and his heart was moved in the heart of his people, as the trees of the wind are moved with the wind. So we'll pause there. We see Syria and Israel have confederated together. They are in an alliance, and then with Assyria rising in power as a world empire, they are now threatening Judah. And there is fear sweeping across the land, like the wind moves the branches and the leaves of the trees. Verse 3, Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear Jashub thy son, at the end of the conduit, of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field, and saying to him, Take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and of the son of Remaliah. So it refers to them as basically smoking firebrands or embers, maybe wood branches in a fire that are burning up, but they're smoking. He's referring to Rezin and, and Apica uh, in. As, as smoking firebrands. Verse 5, Because Syria Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and wax it, or excuse me, vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabeel. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. Pausing again, as they are threatening Judah, Syria and Israel, this unholy alliance, this axis of evil, 
is threatening Judah and they're saying we are going to kick Ahaz off of his throne and we are going to put a puppet king into place and then he will do whatever we want him to do. Verse number, verse number eight. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin and within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken that it be not a people and the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe... Surely ye shall not be established. Verse 10, Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David. So this is Isaiah speaking to Ahaz. And he said, Hear ye now, house of David, it is a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. So we know verse 14 very well. This is clearly, as Matthew 1 and verse 23 states, this is clearly a messianic prophecy, speaking of the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the context is just so unusual. Why would God choose at this point in a failing southern kingdom with a wicked king choose to reveal this great prophecy regarding the Messiah, Jesus Christ? So let's get into this a little bit and we'll look at the virgin born Messiah. First of all, by checking on a map and of course... The northern kingdom is here in red with Israel. The northern kingdom, Galilee, after the split with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The southern kingdom, Judah. And the red dot there is Jerusalem. Of course, this is the area that we know as the Gaza Strip, which is where the war is taking place. And there's Gaza right there. And so we are familiar with this land. It, has continued to be in the headlines for centuries, millennia. So this is where uh, we are at as far as the map at this time in history. You can see the other uh, nations. You have Syria up here, Ammon, uh, Moab, and then down here, Edom. And of course, off the map would be Egypt. But Assyria has been moving in uh, along with the nation of Israel, and they are threatening Jerusalem. Now you probably can't see this very well and I understand that uh, this is a lot of detail so I'm just going to kind of step back and try to point to where we are at. This is a chart that gives us the first three kings of Israel in the combined kingdom. So we have Saul, David, and Solomon and then we have the split. So in the split here, we would have Rehoboam with Judah, 
and then we would have Jeroboam with Israel. And then you can see the number of kings, and then 722 BC, the northern kingdom is conquered by Assyria. All of these kings, I know you can't see it very well, but all of these kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. There was not a single good king in the northern kingdom. We know that when they split, Jeroboam set up a new place of worship and tried to synchronize worship of the Lord God Jehovah with the worship of idols, violating the commandments of God about graven images, no other gods before thee, etc. And in that, in that attempt to synchronize the worship of the true God with idols, what of course happens? The true God gets set aside. And it becomes a worship of, of idols. And that set the course, unfortunately, for the northern kingdom. All the kings were evil. And then we come down on the left side here, and we have these kings of Judah, which of course included the tribe of Benjamin. And there were some that were good. There were some that were evil. And it kind of went back and forth. And then we come down to... Here, where we have been on Wednesday nights the last couple of weeks looking at Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is preaching here at this time that Zephaniah, that Jeremiah, that Ezekiel, Kings Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and then Zedekiah. But we're going to move up a little bit and we're going to see in this right here, we're going to see Isaiah and Micah as the key prophets. So we are down to right around this time right here where we have Ahaz who is the king from 732 to 716. So Ahaz follows Jotham. Jotham was a good king and then Ahaz was a bad king and then he would be followed by Hezekiah who was a good king. So that gives us a little bit of an idea. If we were to come over to here, you can probably see it a little bit better. We have the ministries of Isaiah and Micah, and we have um, King Uzziah, Jotham, and then we have Ahaz. So we are at this point in history right here. So hopefully that gives us a little bit of historical context. Now, I, I again, I can't help but pause here for a minute and just speak to the fact that the, the Bible is such a unique book. Other religious books don't have this kind of historical, grammatical accuracy. There's, his, there's historical events, specific timelines that are clearly defined in history. And God is providential in all of this. And he is revealing himself and he's giving his word and all of this is playing out according to God's providential, sovereign plan. And yet man is allowed to have certain choices and do certain things, but never can it thwart or deter God's sovereign, providential plan. So God is preserving his people. Even though the children of Israel, the northern kingdom is in rebellion and will be conquered by Assyria, even though the southern kingdom, even seeing what's going on up north, they still continue in their back and forth with idolatry and immorality and then serving God and 
different kings bring in different revivals and reforms. Even Hezekiah will come after Ahaz and bring some revival for a period of time. But we see the, the Bible in the historical accuracy, the historical record. We see God's redemptive plan being fulfilled in perfect harmony with God's will. And there's no errors in the record from God's written revelation. This is a unique book. We know it is because it's God's inspired word. The Quran, other religious books don't have the historical accuracy that the Bible has. Oftentimes don't even have historical narrative. Oftentimes it's just visions and all kinds of different random sayings. But here we have specific historical events that archaeology is discovering. They just found another in another archaeological dig, they just found another evidence of the kingdoms of David and Solomon, another archaeological artifact that they dug up that makes reference to the kingdoms of David and Solomon. And the archaeologists, the secular ones, they're all saying, wow, we didn't know all this. <laughs> and believers are saying, right here, all along. And all archaeology is doing is verifying what God's word has already said is true. It just continues to heap more and more evidence verifying what we already know uh, is true, what, what is already declared uh, as the inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative word of God. So that's where we're at. little side note there. Let's begin by looking at the peril confronting Judah. We mentioned Reza, excuse me, Rezin. We read in Isaiah 7, we see Rezin. He's the king of Syria. Pekah, king of Israel. They're in this unholy alliance, this axis of evil. And the Assyrians are rising in power. So what does Pekah think as a wicked king in the northern kingdom? He's saying, oh, I'll get into a confederacy with these wicked pagan Assyrians and then we can conquer and we can then take out Judah and Pekah sees it as a way for him to get more power. Do you think that Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrian emperors really cared about little Israel and little Judah? But this is what man does, right? Do you think, you think Putin really cares about China? Really? What, what, what does Putin and, and uh, what's his name, Xi Jinping? What, what, what do they see in each other? Do they see, hey, we're best buds. We, we, we are in this for, for good goodwill for each other. What are they in it for? Advantage. Advantage. Who can get the power? They're, they're all fighting for themselves. They all want world dominance. So they go and they find who? They find, what's his name, down there in North Korea. And they get together with him. And it's everybody trying to figure out who can get an advantage. You'll sell me this many nuclear weapons and armaments, and I'll give you this, right? It's worse than a game of Uno with the college and career. No, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> you should see the shenanigans going on with the game of Uno with some of our college career and our, and, our, and our teens. No, we had a great time, but I'm certainly not comparing our college career to North Korea <laughs> or to China. <laughs> don't, don't, that's not where I'm going. But, you know... We, we have all, I mean, our sin nature, our deceptive hearts, our evil hearts, 
when, especially when given over to idolatry and paganism and false religion, they're going to go wherever our wicked hearts will take us. And here's Pekah in rebellion against God. He says, mm-hmm, and maybe I can get a little confederacy with Assyria, and then we can take out Judah, and we can have another puppet king, and then we can rule and reign. Just constant power, conflict, dynamic, back and forth. World empires, seen it all throughout history, and it comes down even into little social groups and our cliques and our little groups and even the alpha males and all of the different dynamics that happen in schools and in workplaces and even in politics. And everybody, it seems, is out to get what they can get for themselves, right? It's all about me and my domination and my power, my advantage. So that's what we got going on here. So they reached out to Ahaz at one point, asking him to join their alliance, but Ahaz refused. If we were to have time to go to 1 Kings 16, In 2 Chronicles 28, we could read more detail. But Ahaz, at least he was smart enough to not join this unholy alliance. And he knew if he joined them anyway, they would find a way to probably take him out. So I wouldn't say that Ahaz was really doing this out of the goodness and the purity of his heart so much as it was for self-preservation, okay? So then, of course... Rezin and Pekah, they don't really like this, so they begin to threaten Judah. They want to depose Ahaz, set him up as a puppet king. And all this is taking place around 734 B.C., about 12 years before Israel is completely conquered by the Assyrians. So then Isaiah told Ahaz, as we just read, that this alliance would not have the victory. God would stop them short of conquering Judah. He's appealing to Ahaz. He is saying, you are a wicked king. You are getting a little bit of mercy here. And we see that so many times with unsaved people. We can say that about our own lives before we got saved. That God is extending mercy and kindness and forbearance. And it's the goodness of God that leadeth us to repentance. And we see that with Ahaz. God is extending mercy. He is saying, this unholy alliance is not going to conquer you. Now believe. Believe. The appeal is for him to believe, to trust God. He's saying, I'm going to hold off this alliance, this conquest. You know, hold it off. Now trust me. Look to me. And he even offers him a sign. Now, when we talk about the Jews and the Gentiles, which group always seem to want a sign? The Jews. The Gentiles wanted what? Wasn't it wisdom? The Gentiles were always trying to seek some greater knowledge. They exalted themselves in their intellect. The Jews, they always wanted a sign. Remember when the religious leaders were after Jesus? They wanted a sign. Now here is a time where God, in his providence and his goodness, he's offering Ahaz a sign. He even told Ahaz that this threat would fail, but he should trust God and ask God to help him. And that's the peril. That's what's going on. We know that eventually there would be 120,000 men of Judah's army that would die there'd be 200,000 women and children who'd be taken captive 
by this unholy alliance. So Ahaz is seeing how bad these armies of Assyria and Israel are and what damage they are doing. So we take a pause here and we see on the chart where Isaiah is prophesying around 734 BC, just before this Assyrian invasion of Israel. So that brings us to the promise of deliverance. God's promise was with purpose. And it suggested there would be an improvement in Ahaz's circumstances here. So what kind of promise, what kind of promise do you think that Ahaz and Judah would have been looking for at this point? What kind of promise do you think Ahaz and Judah would have been looking for? Just maybe even humanly speaking, Derek? Okay, conquering king, okay. Maybe Ahaz is looking for, oh, okay, you're going to give me power to overthrow, to conquer this Assyrian-Israeli alliance. Yes? Ultimately, deliverance from the, the Deliverance. At least, at least that much. And so far, from what Isaiah has said, God has allowed Ahaz to know that much. God's going to stop this invasion. And he has stopped them short of conquering Jerusalem. So there has been some consequences already. There's been death among the army. And there has been captivity of some of the women and children. Okay, So... There's obviously a great desire for victory, for relief, etc. So we get to verse number three. And the Lord said unto Isaiah, go forth now to meet Ahaz. And he says to take with him who? Who does he say to take with him? Come on, you can pronounce his name. <laughs> his son. <laughs> Sheer Jashub. Sheer Jashub. And this son's name I don't know of any Sheer Jashubs. Uh, we would probably give him an, an abbreviated name, like SJ or something, right? Um, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't go we'd go with that name. But his name means a remnant shall return. Now, whose son is this? Isaiah's. So what is Isaiah naming his son for? Probably. I know we're kind of inferring a little bit here. But what is he speaking toward? He's speaking toward a desire for the future. He sees the direction that Judah's going. And Isaiah names his son with a hopeful end of Israel returning. Should they go through this coming judgment, which it seems very apparent and obvious is coming. And he's saying there is hope for this remnant that shall return. Isaiah 8, there will be another son that's born to Isaiah. But right now he is asked to bring Sheer Jashub with him. And Isaiah's message was one of consolation. He told Ahaz the plans of Syria in Israel would ultimately fail. As we just read a few minutes ago. Take heed and be quiet. Verse 4. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted. For the two tails of these smoking firebrands, the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, their evil counsel will fail. And they will be stopped. They will not conquer Jerusalem. They will not conquer Judah at this time. They're going to do damage, but we see in verse 7, Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. So that's the word to the king. But then we see the word of the Lord. And that brings us down to verses 7 through 9, as we were reading a few minutes ago. 
Here, God promises that both Damascus and Samaria would be destroyed within 65 years. So let's go back. Verse 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus. That's resin. The head of Damascus is resin. And within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken that it be not a people. Ephraim, Samaria. Who is that speaking of? Israel. That's the ten northern kingdoms. Oftentimes there would be a single tribe or a single place. Judah is often the reference to the whole southern kingdom, even though it included Benjamin, Ephraim, sometimes Samaria, would refer to the entire northern kingdom. Okay? And he says, in how many years? Even this specifically, God says in 65 years, there would be the end of, basically, of, of Israel and their ability to unite together as a nation and to resist Assyria, or any other foreign invasion. And it comes true, exactly the way God says. We know that in 732, now this is probably being, this is, this is written, this event is taking place around 734. So in two years, Damascus would fall, okay? Syria would fall, and then Twelve years later, in 722, Israel would fall. So we have, and I, I apologize, I've been saying Assyria this whole time. It's Syria and Israel in this unholy alliance. So Syria falls, Damascus, 732. And then 12 years later, Samaria, Ephraim, Israel would fall, 722. And then what about the 65 years? 669 B.C., Israel... I'm going to go back. I'm going to do this real quick here. 669 B.C. Went too far. Okay, this area that is now in the news as the West Bank. What do the, what do the Jews refer to the West Bank as? What's that? Okay, that's, yeah, that's what, probably the Hebrew name. Okay, what do, what do we often hear? Judea Samaria. This is the area right here. Judea Samaria. What happens by 669 BC? Well, the Assyrians have conquered the northern kingdom, 722. And then what do the Assyrians do? The Assyrians, they do some deporting, some captivity. But what else do the Assyrians do? They bring in their own people and they flood the land with their own people. They bring in their own culture. They force the people of Samaria to submit to their culture and then what begins to happen as the Israelites who are already susceptible to this because of their idolatry, their immorality, their paganism. What happens as the Assyrians bring in their people? What happens? Intermarriage. So by the time of Jesus's day, who is living in that area between Galilee and Judea? The Samaritans. And what did the Jews think of the Samaritans? They hated them. Racism wouldn't even go, wouldn't even travel through there. They would go around. So when Jesus is witnessing to the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, when Jesus talks about the good Samaritan, that is just blowing the minds of the Jews. Those are evil people. They're half breeds. The racism. 
It all began when Assyria conquered and then they flooded the land. So by 669 B.C., 65 years from Isaiah's prophecy, Israel is incapable of uniting together in the northern kingdom as a nation to resist any kind of foreign invasion, to even unite together politically, economically, or any other way. They've now been assimilated into the Assyrian culture. Okay? So that's a little bit, of, a little bit more history there. That helps us even with understanding the New Testament. So then Isaiah's prophecy concluded with a warning to Ahaz. The end of verse 9. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. So what does that, if we turn that around, what does he imply? He says if ye don't believe, you will not be established. So what does that imply? If you do believe, you will be established. So Ahaz has a choice, and God in his mercy goes even further. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto, unto Ahaz. Obviously, we're seeing this as the Lord. It's, now, can I, can I mention this again in the inspiration of God's word? Verse 10, the Lord spake. But likely, who was the one, humanly speaking, who was doing the speaking? Isaiah. So Isaiah is delivering the revelation of God. And he's writing it, of course, recording it by the, by the inspiration of God, the inspired word of God. Ask thee a sign of the Lord. The Jews want a sign, constantly want a sign. Ahaz is going to get a sign, this wicked king. He's given a choice. God's already said, they're not going to conquer Jerusalem. I'm going to give you a respite. You have a chance, Ahaz, to turn from your wicked ways, to look to the Lord. He's calling out for Ahaz to repent. Then we see the presentation of the sign. The presentation of a sign. What does Ahaz respond with? As verse 11, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God, ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Verse 12, But Ahaz said what? I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Here is this pious, arrogant, just cocky king. I'm not going to ask anything of the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly. I'm, I'm, again, I'm inferring a little bit here. But you've been around these kinds of people. Arrogant, cocky, snooty. Just, you know, they, they know it all, right? They may play on your team. They may work at your workplace. They may be in your classroom. Whatever the case may be, I've dealt with these kinds of kids. I've dealt with these kinds of adults. They know it all. You can tell them straight up. You can tell them. You can give them choices. You can extend mercy. Obviously, God is trying to do a work on their, on, on their heart. And here's Ahaz. Opportunity given. Mercy extended. And he mocks God. He basically laughs in God's face. I don't need the help of God. I can figure this out on my own. And he tries to hyper-spiritualize it, doesn't he? I'm not going to tempt the Lord. It's just an arrogant, mocking way of saying, I don't need God's help. Shame on Ahaz, but shame on us when we have that kind of attitude. When God's extending mercy, when God's trying to get our attention, when the things are starting to happen in our life that we know are clearly some of the consequences of our sin, that God is clearly trying to get our attention, shame on us if we respond like an Ahaz. And say, no, God, I'll figure this out on my own. I'm not going to tempt you, Lord. And then kind of spiritualize, rationalize, and try to normalize this kind of 
disrespectful, irreverent, downright blasphemous behavior and attitude. So Ahaz fakes humility. He mocks the goodness of God. And then what does Isaiah say? In verse 13, and he said, hear ye now. And he turns to whom? He's not just speaking to Ahaz now. He uses a phrase. What's that phrase in verse 13? House of David. Now he's turning and he's going to give a prophecy for all of Israel and for all time. And he's going to give a prophecy regarding the virgin birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He speaks to the house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? So we see then the prophecy, the sign, the son, and then we'll finally see the significance. So the sign then, as he speaks to all of Israel, the house of David, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does the name Emmanuel mean? God with us. So this is clearly God tabernacling, coming into the world of men. As Ephesians would talk about descending down. As Philippians 2 would talk about, took upon him the form of a servant. This is the prophecy of the Messiah regarding God with us, taking on human flesh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And he is saying that this son, God with us, will be born of what kind of a woman? A virgin, okay? We don't have a lot of time. Someone find Genesis 24 and verse 43 real quick. Genesis 24 and verse 43. Who will read that for us? You can just raise your hand real quick and read real quick. Genesis 24 and verse 43. Anybody have it? You got it, Nat? Okay. 20, Genesis 24, 43. What kind of a woman's coming? Virgin. virgin. Same word. Virgin. This is a mature woman unmarried. She's a virgin. Proverbs 30 and verse 19. Someone read Proverbs 30 and verse 19 real quick. Proverbs 30 and verse 19. Okay, Jake. Jake. Okay, so there it's made. Okay, but the same word in that made there is specifically a virgin. It's in that context we understand that this is a proverb where he doesn't understand the way of a man with a virgin. Okay, that's the whole implication there, though it's translated made. It's a virgin. Song of Solomon 1 and verse 3. Song of Solomon 1 and verse 3. And while you're in Song of Solomon, chapter 1 and verse 3, also if you'll read chapter 6 and verse 8. Song of Solomon. So a little book after Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. 
Song of Solomon 1 and verse 3. And then chapter 6 and verse 8. Anybody have that? We're talking about Solomon marrying a woman, and she is clearly identified in Song of Solomon as a mature, unmarried woman, a virgin. Song of Solomon 1 and verse 3. Anybody have it? Nat, again? Okay. Chapter 6 and verse 8. You mind flipping a couple pages? Song of Solomon still. Yes. Song of Solomon 6 and verse number 8. Virgins, again. So the only place we see maid, it's still clear that it's referring to an unmarried, a mature woman, unmarried, a virgin. This is clearly, and as Matthew 1 and verse 23, the specific word in Matthew 1 and verse 23, Parthenos, is referring to a mature woman, unmarried, a virgin. So when the Revised Standard Virgin changes from virgin to maid or, I forget, young woman or something, they're, they're, they're not translating correctly. The correct translation is virgin. Maid, in that case, is still referencing, clearly in the context, a virgin. Why is this so important, that this son be born of a virgin? What is so central to, what's that? Sin. Yeah. Derek, you were going to say? The sin nature is passed through whom? The man, the seed of the man. Okay, so what's the significance? What's the significance to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, virgin conception? And we know Mary was not a perpetual virgin like the Catholic Church teaches, okay? She had other children, half-brothers, half-sisters of, of Jesus. But as we come down to the end of our time, it's so important that we see this significance, that Jesus Christ be conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he not have a sin nature, and because of that, the trustworthiness of the Gospels, the infallibility and authority of Scripture, the doctrine of the Incarnation, the sinless human nature of Christ, and the entire doctrine of Christ rises and falls on this one truth, that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Yes? To fulfill that his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us, he would have to be born of the, the Holy Spirit. Not, exactly. Not the union of a man and a woman. Exactly. And the fact that he goes and he mentions the name Emmanuel, God with us, references the deity of Christ. So the deity of Christ is even attached to this. So, as we come to the end of this, why Ahaz? Why at this context? Why in this moment would God give such a key prophecy with such a key doctrinal content regarding the deity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, upon which the infallibility of the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible, 
the uh, trustworthiness of the Gospels, even the atonement, the second Adam. How could Christ make atonement for the sins of man if he's a sinner himself, right? So all of this rest, why, why here, why now? I'm not saying I have all the, all the answers and, the, and, and I know the mind of God here and, the, and I can't be dogmatic, but... Yes. Okay, so in the midst of such terrible circumstances, God has a redemption plan. Okay, anything else? Yes. Okay. Yes. In spite of your unworthiness, I'm going to send a redeemer. And I'm going to close with this. I'm going to back up, and then we'll be done. There was, there's some more with verses 15 and 16 that we won't have time to, to deal with. But look, look, at, look at all this failure. What, 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 is the world, what is the world looking for, even to this day? We've already touched on it. What is the world looking for? A savior. A son who would come and redeem the people. Every son that's born has fault, has failure. There hasn't been a perfect prophet. There hasn't been a perfect priest. And there certainly hasn't been a perfect king. Now, thankfully, a Hezekiah will come along, a Josiah. There will be some reforms and some revivals. But here in all of this hopelessness with the threat, with the extension of God's mercy, when Ahaz should have asked for a sign, God turns and even to this wicked king and he is pointing to God's redemption plan and the coming of a savior who is God who will be born of a virgin will fulfill the messianic prophecies that Israel with all of the truth should be seeing and is refusing to recognize and it's a reminder to us to be looking for the savior daily in our lives and looking for his second coming and being faithful now for when he will come again any closing comments or questions? No? Okay, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this wonderful passage. Lord, the awesomeness of this thought, of this reality. That even as Judah and Israel are in rebellion, unholy alliances, as Ahaz looks away to himself and away from the Savior, Lord, you give a tremendous promise through your prophet of the coming Messiah, born of a virgin, Emmanuel, God with us. And as we look forward to this Christmas season and Christmas Day, Lord, may we be even now be determined to be more faithful, to be occupying till you come again. As we see these prophecies of the first coming, Lord, may we be preparing for the second coming. And we thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, who came sinless, paid the penalty for our sin, was the atonement for our sin, sinless and perfect in every way. And we thank you, Lord, for this prophecy that, again, reveals the glory of your redemption plan. 
and speaks again to the inspiration and the authority of your word. May we hold firmly to the truth of God's word and live it out in our, in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. We uh, will get ready for the service to start in about 15 minutes.